how are we to be transformed? Right? How? It's a, it's a how question. And it's a little bit different than the kind of questions that we sometimes ask. We can really be clear about how we become Christians. Right? That part has all been mapped out really clearly. But after that, the growth part becomes a little bit more shady. It's like a grab bag of denominational, sort of throw it all in there and just try to do what you like after that moment of becoming a Christian. After that, it's kind of like a choose your own adventure. <laughs> kind of what you, what you like after that. That's kind of the message that kind of comes down. And some people are into some things and some people are into other things. But nobody is ever sort of like returning to something I find, or at least seldom they are returning and saying, no, this is the path. Right? This is the, you know, the man of the Lord, this is the way. Right? I want to know what the way is. And so the fundamental question today is that how does God heal us? He's a great physician, right? But it's the how question. That's a different kind of question. And that my prayer this morning is that the Spirit of God goes ahead of us and prepares, prepares us to hear what Paul is going to say in Romans 8. Because in Romans 8, I actually think Paul is starting to try to answer that question, how. He, he's beginning to address that. Hey, listen. You want to see what the mechanics are like, how it happens, this is how it goes down. In my professional life as a pastor, in my personal life, I've been in a lot of conversations with people about how to grow, what's the nature of the spiritual life, and what, what are we doing here as Christians. And I, I've noticed that there's generally a lot of advice people give each other about the spiritual life, about spiritual growth, and I would characterize a lot of that sort of, sort of advice that we give to one another as the try-harder strategy for spiritual growth, right? It's like, hey, what, what are you going through? Oh, that sounds hard. Ah, you should try harder. <laughs> as if you're kind of not already trying your hardest. The try-harder spiritual, the, the try-harder uh, strategy for spiritual growth is exciting and it feels initially productive and you realize that you should be better, like there's some aha moment for you where you're like, oh man, that's how I should be. And you have this awareness that I'm not that way. And so you go, I'm gonna just commit to being that way. And there's just, from there, there's just not a lot of clear steps, but you feel really motivated towards something. If you tried this, you know that it doesn't work very long. If trying harder were all we needed to master the spiritual life, we wouldn't have a need for Christ. And this is Christ's church, right? There's a need for Christ. I'm trying hard, but I still need Christ. It's what Paul teaches us about Romans 8, and it's what I want to talk about today. Again, it's the how question. It's not the what question. What should I do? What should I think? We kind of, I, I think that some of those things are already answered for us, because often there's an attempt to answer the how with some version of the try-harder strategy, but it just doesn't work. And so again, today, just to focus us, by what means? By what means do I become that kind of person? How does it happen? Uh, written on the uh, wall at Saint Teresa, uh, at, at Mother Teresa's Saint Mother Teresa's house uh, for children in Calcutta, India, were these words. And now I'm going to give you these words, but I want to tell you already that I think you're going to think these words are good. I think you're going to think these words are beautiful. I think that you're going to agree with these words. So the way I want you to evaluate the words I'm about to read, I don't want you to evaluate, ooh, I agree with those words. I think you already agree, right? The way I want you to evaluate these words is as you listen to what I'm saying here, what Mother Teresa has said, is I want you to evaluate this from the point of view of how might I become the kind of person who could be doing those things, right? Because I don't want just agreement with a point. I want how might I become that person? 
That's a different kind of question, and that's the kind of question I want to ask. So here's the, here's the quote. It says, people are often unreasonable, irrational, self-centered. See how we can agree with that stuff, right? It's easy to agree with. Forgive them anyway. Okay, wait a second. I don't know if I agree with that. But if you are kind, people may accuse you uh, of, of being selfish and having ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some unfaithful friends and some genuine enemies. Succeed anyway. If you are honest and sincere, people may deceive you. Be honest and sincere anyway. What you spend years, years creating, others can destroy overnight. Create anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, some may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today is often going to be forgotten. Do good anyway. Give the best you have, and it will never be enough. Give your best anyway. In the final analysis, it is between you and God. It is never between you and them anyway. Again, who disagrees with that? Right? We, we all aspire to that truth, that that would be what would, what would come out of me. Right? That I would naturally be in that flow to where I could embody what is being said there. This is profound wisdom that virtually everyone can agree with. I need to forgive. I need to be kind. But right there is a temptation to try harder. You likely agree with these words so immediately. You are so enamored with the beauty of these words that you quickly agree that you want those words to be true about you. And that's the moment of temptation. And that's the moment of decision. Either we open ourselves to God and to the journey that He is going to take us on, a journey that will often be long and maybe pretty difficult, a lot of lack of clarity maybe, or, or you commit to the secure feeling of, I'm trying harder. Trying harder promises quick results, but it doesn't ever deliver. The longer, more relational approach of cooperating with God might take the rest of our lives. It's going to be messy and complex, and you won't always know what to do next, but it works, and you are not alone. The question is not, do I agree with Mother Teresa's words? The question is this, that's the next slide, how do I become the person I am called to be? How do I become the person that God made me? How do I become the person who God thought of when he made me? The better question is, is, is to ask this one rather than try harder, because try harder is an inadequate answer to the all-important question of how. The jumping-off point, then, for spiritual growth is often this conflicted place where we mentally agree that we should be something that we don't know how to become. And I wonder sometimes if we aren't stuck there unnecessarily and we can get unstuck. But to demonstrate that you already came here already kind of knowing something, I just want to go through a quick quiz. I don't want anybody to, to, to panic or anything. This isn't, a, I just want to, I think you're going to ace this quiz. So just out loud. First, uh, first thing, I think you came here knowing a lot of good answers already. So, just out loud, should you guys be kind? Yes. yes. Okay, kindness is preferred over unkindness, right? Pretty easy, right? Uh, is it better to be selfish or unselfish? Unselfish. Un unselfish is, is, is the goal, right? Uh, should we brag? No. no, no. So, looks like we already know some stuff, and if the point is, is knowing stuff, then I don't know what else I'm doing. Let's just close this in prayer right now. Right? <laughs> no, we, we know. We know so much. What's the problem? Is the problem we don't know what we should do? Probably we don't know how to implement the plan of what we know. 
I can, but I want to cut a little deeper for a second. Uh, should you forgive or should you not forgive? Yeah. You should forgive. The reason why I love the command to forgive is because it defies and disallows us to kid ourselves that all we need to do to forgive is just agree that we should forgive. Some of us in this room have been deeply sinned against. Forgiveness isn't just like, oh, yeah, yeah, let's just say some words. No, forgiveness is, is, a, is, a, is a mess. Forgiveness is something that's difficult. David is a picture of, for us, I think King David is a picture for us of how we are to engage these more difficult realities. Like, wait a second, I've got pain in there. I've got baggage, things that I'm holding on to, things I can't, I'd like to set down, I just can't. I don't know where to set those things down. King David said this, he said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. That does not sound like trying harder. That sounds like opening up vulnerably to a relationship. Oh. Hold that image of David saying these words because I, I think these words point directly to what Paul is saying in, in Romans 8. What courage this must have taken. What must he have known about the goodness and grace of God that he would invite that kind of searching in a soul that could be so filthy and unclean as we found it to be? I often take my search for quick principles to the Apostle Paul. When you take these more famous, you know, the sound bites that Paul has, the, the verses we like from Paul, the ones we know, go to this next slide. It says, put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. Sure. Okay. Where the, can't get any more specific directions than that, right? Do not be conformed to this world. Oh, I mean, I'm trying. I, I really love my phone, though, and I, it's part of your life without it, right? But okay, is there anything more you want to say about that? Let your love be genuine. Abhor what's evil. Oh, I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying so hard. I'm not sure that I'm actually doing all of those things. The Bible can easily be used as a quick fix. We can read these passages as if there's no process in any of it. Like it's simply putting on a hat. I'm tempted to think that Paul is just some amazing guy who had all the life skill to just do all that stuff automatically. And I'm tempted to put him on a pedestal and to just get busy just trying to be like him. That approach has been called Nike spirituality. And just do it. Right? It's an old Nike proverb. Come on. Just get up and do it. You want enact it. Enact it. Go. Manifest. What's the problem with you? That's, that's what we're getting from our culture. It's just something that we should be done. Should be done. So there's somebody to admire. They, they just were able to do it. And if you aren't like them, then you're out. You should just be able to do this. Transformation seems like it should happen pretty quick. But... I think I want to contrast this. When I read Acts 9, Acts 9 is the account where Paul's convert, converted on the road to Damascus. This is a conversion that is told by Luke, the, 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 the apostle Luke, the guy, the disciple who walked around, he wrote Luke and he wrote Acts. His job in writing that was to give an accurate historical record of what was going down. And as he, as he gives this historical record in Acts 9, it's, it's unbelievably difficult because it looks like, to me, Nike spirituality almost pays off here. It looks dramatic and it looks really quick. And it looks about as quick as Nike spirituality seems like it could work. And in, uh, in Acts 9, it says this, So Ananias went and found Saul. 
He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, Lord Jesus, who, uh, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road and sent me to you, that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. And then he got up and he was baptized, and afterwards he ate some food and regained his strength. And then Saul stayed with the believers in the message for a few days, and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is indeed the Son of God. I just want to cut to the chase on this passage and say this is an amazing story. It's an important historical moment. Luke got it right to highlight it in his history, in his history book. But I would say psychologically, God's people have been chasing after this kind of story. In my experience as a pastor for 20 years, people are saying, they're coming to me hurting because they have not had their own road to Damascus moment. They look and they see everybody else seems to have their transformation and they're thinking, why is my transformation taking so long? What do they know? What, what did Paul know? So he got his road to Damascus. Where's my road to Damascus? We have been chasing this and we've been wanting our conversions to be quick. But there is a longer and a different view that I'm, I'm grateful to have found. And that is because since Paul was, since uh, Luke was giving a historical record, he gives that historical record account. But then in Galatians 1, now Paul is writing a letter to another church. And he's actually talking about the same events. And he fills out some of the details a little bit more. And so in Luke, what looked, in Acts, what looked so quick and just like a quick turnaround. Like, what's the matter with all of us that it's taking so long? Paul actually goes, oh, actually, it probably didn't actually happen as quick. And so we've been chasing that one Acts 9 story, but the same story is talked about in Galatians 1. The same events are talked about by the guy who was involved in it in Galatians 1. And it seems like it's a little bit different. Paul as a pastor is trying to talk to this church, and he's trying to talk to them about spiritual growth, and he's longing to explain the longer process of growth. And so when he reports the, the big and the dramatic in Luke, but now Paul is reporting what he actually went through. And he says this in Galatians 1.15. He says, but even before I was born, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. Then it pleased him to reveal his son to me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. And we're like, yep, we know about that, Paul. We heard about that in, in Acts 9. And this, when this happened, I did not rush out to consult with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to consult with, with those who were apostles before I was. Instead, I went away into Arabia, the desert, and later returned to the city of Damascus. Then three years later, I went to Jerusalem to get to know Peter. And I stayed with him for 15 days. So three years and 15 days. It just, so which one is it? It just feels like, what was it, Luke's? Well, again, Luke was a history guy. He was writing a history. And Paul is a pastor. He's trying to explain, listen, this is how it goes. This is what growth feels like. This is how it takes time. Paul's describing that longer view of spiritual growth. It didn't just happen in a couple weeks. His training in spiritual growth took the better part of three years. This is Jesus knowing him, training him, working out those deep-seated character issues. It's a long process for Paul. This is Saul. This is the Pharisee Saul, the guy who's so zealous. At times, it might have not felt very productive or like there was a lot of progress to show for, but Jesus likely was confronting Paul over the course of those years asking him to take a hard look at some things about himself, like those things that make him so angry and so zealous. If there was a person who knows and understands that longer view of the Christian character and how it's formed, and how it's not just formed overnight or by the end of the sermon, 
or by the end of a song, or by the end of a Sunday, but that it takes a season, and many, many seasons perhaps. If you would be honest for a moment, I, I wonder if you're like me. Do you secretly hope that that transformation is more like Paul's down the road to Damascus? The longer view seems more cumbersome. But I've heard thousands of sermons, and I've been to just so many hours of so many hours of church in my life, and I've just found that my pastor has been chasing this quicker vision. Like literally every Sunday, like low key, I got to come to church and go. Listen, it's probably not going to be a road to Damascus today, so just let it not be that. And then I got to get okay, 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 because it's not the way it goes. This is that my whole life has got to go into this. The longer view is it's harder, but it works. Eugene Peterson says. It's the long obedience in the same direction. It's staying the course uh, when it's long and boring and feels unproductive or painful. So transformation doesn't happen as quickly as we'd like it to. It doesn't come by simply copying Paul's behavior or trying harder. Uh, if it doesn't happen right away, it takes too long. By what means then are we to grow? Well, knowing what Paul actually experienced in that desert for three years, we can make some assumptions that he'd be a guy that we want to hear about on this topic. And so as we prepare to look at what Paul says about how we actually grow, it would be helpful for us to think about our hearts as a house that God has designed. So I brought this real, real quick just to sort of like illustrate. I really think that, I don't know what you feel with this, Ken, but I think that a lot of Pastoring is just reframing things a lot of times. Like, here's the difficulty, and you're feeling this way about it. Well, Paul seems to be talking about our, our, our hearts. You guys can see that? Paul seems to be talking about our hearts as a house, as a dwelling place, he seems to make reference to. God is looking to move in, but our, our, in our sin and our brokenness, our house has become helplessly cluttered with trash. And so, if, if God is supposed to be in our heart there, that we just have to acknowledge that, man, it's just a mess. There's just so much clutter. There's so many things in my heart. You know, the, the things that, you, that come out of you, they come from what is inside you, right? And so there's so many things that are inside, so many attachments, so many places where we get snagged. He's describing in Romans 8, I believe, how that mess becomes clean. Because God is looking to move in, and if God is looking to move in, what's the first problem? He's got all this, this stuff in there. Have you ever seen the show Hoarders? It's that reality show about people who have an emotional addiction to their clutter and they can't allow themselves to get rid of their stuff because their identity has become so wrapped up in all their things. And their homes have become uninhabitable. Yes, this is pretty uninhabitable, but still God has bought the property. In Christ, God has bought the property. And so, the Bible calls this thing that God is doing in us union. It refers to this oneness, this Availability of God's Spirit being the same and one with our spirit. It's the deepest connection that we can imagine. We talk about this as a relationship with Christ, but it's, it's somehow more qualitatively than that. Sometimes I feel like we're talking about a relationship as if maybe we have with an acquaintance or even a good friend, but these are not adequate to describe what Scripture is calling union with His Spirit. And this is what union is looking at. It's the moving in. It's God's Spirit moving into my spirit. And so we are designed for that union with God's Spirit, and this is made possible by Christ, but it's made possible by His death and resurrection. So Christ sort of presides over this, and because of the cross, now we know that the Holy Spirit can come 
and dwell in the house as it is. And it's a huge mess, and that's a huge problem. Spiritual maturity, then, is being filled with an ever-increasing measure of God himself. And growth in that maturity, that how question, is cooperating with God's spirit as he excavates and cleans out your heart so that he can have more of you to inhabit. Acknowledging that there is a mess in your heart is not cause for alarm or surprise, but it is often just that, alarming and surprising, which makes growth challenging, offering, often requiring that we have courage. But we have to remember that this is Christ's church. The cross disarms anything in there. What did we say when we said we did confession? There is more. Whatever, there's more grace and love than there is trash and, and, and hoarding in this house. And so there is always that going to be more. And so Paul begins to get really specific about how this works in Romans 8, 26. He says, and the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what to pray, what God wants us to pray, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed with words. So Jesus is here, and the Spirit is now in our deep, and the house is a mess, but Christ bought the house. He fell in love with the place a long time ago. He wants to restore the house to what it is. All these houses around this neighborhood, how these houses are just dying to be restored to what they originally were. That's how Christ sees us. He knows the way we're supposed to be. For him, loving this space doesn't mean leaving our heart in the current condition. A thorough renovation is needed to bring it back to that unique charm that it was originally intended because he is the original builder. And so this is an accurate picture of, of what Paul is undoubtedly experiencing in the desert. He must have found that his, uh, that, that his house was a mess. But he also would have found that God was not turning himself away. The Holy Spirit was in his deep. A God who was determined to make space inhabitable once again. And it goes on in the next slide. And the Father, who knows all hearts, knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us, believers, in harmony with God's own will. We were, we were praying through that earlier today. So the Father, let's just say the Father is just, for, for the figurative picture here. The Father has union with the Spirit that is in our deep. And the Father and the Spirit have a union. They have a connection. And so the, the Father knows the Spirit, and now the Spirit is in us, and so there's union, and we can bring uh, symmetry to all of that connection. Last night, and Ken alluded to this, last night when you were sleeping, if you stand with Christ, the Spirit was in your deep, reporting to the Father what is in your heart. Things that may be beyond your ability to see or understand. Things that aren't even on your radar. The Spirit is pleading for us in harmony with the Father's will. The Spirit has union with the Father, and the Spirit now has, uh, because of Christ, has union with us as well. And based on the report from the Holy Spirit, Paul then says, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Everything hinges on this passage. A passage that is, by the way, so famous that oftentimes we miss it. Because we think, oh yeah, I know that one. But he's saying, it is, it's one of those passages I think we need to pay attention to because what Paul is saying is this, that based on the Spirit's report to the Father, the Father orchestrates life circumstances that will cause these issues to be jostled out of us, to be excavated, to be cleaned permanently. So based on this report, the Father then creates life circumstances that isolate this issue or this issue or this issue and causes it to come out, leaving more room for 
God for his spirit. Truly recognize the circumstances that God has orchestrated in your life to cause that. You're driving your car and somebody triggers, somebody triggers your rage, right? Some relationship that you have triggers something in you, some kind of insecurity that you can tell it's something that's raging from the past. These are opportunities for growth. They're not just opportunities to feel more pain and just keep going. These are opportunities to interrogate. What's going on there? What's in my deep that's causing this to happen? Spirit, what are you doing in me? This is why it's so important to stay connected to the details of your story. Uh, this last Christmas, I've got, I mentioned I had kids. Today. Last, we, whenever we move together as a family, it just feels like my kids are just bouncing like pinball all over the place. And it's like, I just want to just walk down the sidewalk with my family and not like bother everybody, right? And so my personality is just like deep in my, some of the junk in here is that I just like mentally abandon like, like camaraderie with my kids when they're embarrassing me. I'm just, I'm just like, oh, I don't know who kids those are. I don't know. I'm just like, sorry, Merry Christmas. It's good to see you. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for these, these I don't know who they are. <laughs> I'm just this terrible person. And it's like, what is going on in my story that I have to have that kind of be seen as that appropriate? My mess is being jostled out of me. And I have an opportunity to go, I don't, I don't think I have to be this way. I don't think that the way that my life kind of triggers my issues, I don't think that's the end of my story. The questions I should ask, what then should I do? Where should I go? Lord, do you need me to, to do something else? Are there any amends I need to make? These are all questions I could ask instead of just being like, oh gosh, this, this painful thing's happening again. When is this pain going to stop? When is my Christianity going to kick in and, and finally stop making this, this pain happen? No, your Christianity is kicking in and it's causing the pain to happen so that you can have more space for God in your life. That's what's going on. For Paul, even the hard parts of our story are being used for the good, and as much as the hard stuff is hard, it is purifying us and cleansing us and making more room for him. And slowly we are being restored to glory. The Spirit is in our deep expressing God's heart and calling that heart out of our own, bringing harmony between his heart and our heart. Which leads me to just my first pretty simple takeaway. The first one is just give it time. Just give it time. If, if you're like me and you're secretly hoping that like there's going to be some something's going to be said at church today and I'm going to walk well, I'm going to walk in incomplete and walk out complete like I I like low-key have a small version of that every Sunday <laughs> and I need to repent of that and just go Lord uh, it's probably going to take longer than that probably going to take longer than that okay I'm going to open myself up to a bigger process than that uh, it's going to take time you, you ever try to shake an hourglass it doesn't help <laughs> In fact, it slows everything down. Small amounts, slow and steady. Um, you may be ambitious, you might want to work hard, but it's going to be important to keep in step with the Spirit and what the Spirit is excavating in here. This is careful, careful work. Very delicate. So we don't just like run ahead and just like, let's, let's follow the Spirit's work here. That's the only professional who knows what to do. I would, if, I would, I would take everything I can. Was up to me if I was the project manager on this? I would, I would just like dump it all out real quick behind some restaurant or something like that. I hope I dealt with it, right? Uh, the Spirit knows what He's doing. The Spirit knows where we need to be. Um, give it time. It took Abraham, Moses, and David the entire course of their lives to be transformed in this way. It took Paul three years. Give it a second. Second one, move from control to conversation. 
Allow the tough circumstances of your life to become a conversation with God about what needs to shake loose. We are invited to reinterpret our life circumstances against the fresh backdrop of how God is moving in our hearts, that there's a whole new game happening here than perhaps we were even aware of. My anger and frustration with my kids, while painful, can become productive conversation with the Holy Spirit, where I can cooperate with His leadership to clean my heart so that I can have more. In the midst of the things that I can't control right now, inside the great injustice of being sinned against, understand that there is a God who is crazy about you, who loves you, and wants to have a conversation about your deepest stuff with you. At any given moment, in any particular circumstance, God is asking, what frustrates you about this? What is that? Let's start there. What frustrates you? What have you believed about me in all of this? Maybe God is asking you. In any given hard situation, oh, what did you believe about the world out there? Why do you believe that about the world? Or, or what do you believe about me on this one? Like, let's isolate what you think about me. It may be wrong, but let's, what's the operating idea of who I am here? All of these are better questions than just trying harder. All of these are, are questions that cooperate with him. And then, finally, this is an important one. Christ cleans, but never covers. Christ cleans, but he never covers. What do I mean by that? Christ provides safety, not a fig leaf. Acknowledge the temptation to hide and cover like Adam hide and covered. And then fight it. Walk on. Stay in step with the Spirit. Like, you mean somebody's going to see that? I don't want to know. Hold tight. Hold tight. There's lots of ways to hide and cover, but one in particular that has plagued the church in recent years, recent history. Um, I would just say this, we're going to continue with this analogy of using the heart as a house. People tend to receive Christ as good news because in their minds, Christ covers their mess. Christ sort of just builds like a, a something on top of everything else and kind of gets in their way. As if the good news about Christ is that you become a Christian and then Christ builds a second floor onto your house and you can just leave all this down there and it'll just build like a staircase on the outside and it's fresh and clean on top and that's the good news of Christ. Says so many people, this is the gospel. And you have a fresh place to live in. Fantastic, but guess what? In that show, Hoarders, one time in one episode when they cleaned the house out systematically, they found 70 dead cat carcasses. So listen, if you're living above the below with 70 dead cats, you're not gonna be able to hide your character. You're not gonna, so it actually isn't good news in the end. You're just kind of delaying what's going on. The call to Christ is the call to be restored, not covered up. Right? And so that's the offer on the table, and we get it a little bit wrong because all of this is scary. And I would say, yes, it is, except as long as it's scary, it just means I haven't understood deep enough the safety I have in Christ that there is more. There is more, because there is more than, than there is my sin and brokenness. Christ wants to inhabit the original house. The good news of the gospel is that God cleans, never covers up. Are there any issues in you that have been bubbling up? Have you sensed God speaking to you through your life, asking you to deal with any particular issue? We started in confession today. 
Did you have a sense in confession today that, ah, there, there might be a lot of conversation I want to have with that. That was a good starter. It, stick with it. Stick with that conversation. Is there a strategy for you that has worked for most of your life and then suddenly that strategy is no longer working for you anymore and you have a crisis on your hands? That just sounds so much like the Holy Spirit to me. It's how the Holy Spirit works. Is it possible that this is an invitation for you to cooperate with God's Spirit who is seeking to clean you so that you can move into you more fully? God cleans and never covers. Going back to Mother Teresa's beautiful words, we are called to forgive anyway. But here's what we're really called to do. We're called to do, to do the slow process of becoming the kind of people, of allowing God to, to turn us into the kind of people, to cooperating with God, so that we'd be turned into the kind of people who could do the kind of things that Mother Teresa was talking about. It's the how question. And we stick with it, we're going to find that God is always with us. Let's pray. Father, we, we do recognize that you are in our deep. We do recognize that we have ambitious hearts that want to try harder, that want to feel more productive in getting things done. Lord, when our friends look at us, when you look at us, Lord, we want you to catch us being really busy and getting lots of things done, Lord, but Lord, there's another process. There's a much more vulnerable and intimate process and it takes time. And so Lord, walk us through that. Teach us what that way would look like and show us how that might become something that would attract people into our community who see that there's something different, that our houses, we're not settling for our houses just covering up our mess, Lord, but we, we are we're having our houses clean. And, and that, Lord, you are moving in and that your spirit is becoming our spirit in an ever-increasing measure. Jesus, we love you and we need you. Continue to show us this way. Thank you for this place, this, this neighborhood church. What a blessed neighborhood in Jesus.